Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Land Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Um, we appreciate that you've invited us into your home, and we hope that our service tonight will be a great blessing to you. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Please join us as we bring the Sabbath in together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and commanded us to be a light unto the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Alright, now let's do the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Morei prihagafen, Amen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings the fruit of the vine. Amen. See the blessing over the bread. Hamutzi lekemin haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai. Eloheinu melech haolam, min haaretz, amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Alright, husbands, let's bless our wives together. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for my wife and the blessing that she is, Father. Um, thank you, Father, for just the ways that she sustains us, Father, and takes care of our daughter. And uh, just provides us with so many good things, Father. Thank you that you've blessed her hands. You've made her diligent and made her able. Um, I thank you, Father, so much, Father, for the, just the ways that she makes her home such a welcoming place to be, Father, for me and for our guests and for our family, Father, that we invite in. Um, I praise you, Father. I just thank you so much, Father, just the, the comfort and the joy that I receive by being with my wife, Father. I praise you, Father, that she raises our daughter and there are many more children in brightness, Father, and in the love of your word. I just praise you, Father. And thank you so much. I see you watch over us now in Yeshua's name. Amen. Oh, bless our, our sons. <laughs>
face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance and grant you peace. May you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. May the Lord with you ever be. May he bring you home unto the land prepared for you. Blessed be the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Mi chamocha. Mi ba'elim Adonai. Mi chamocha nedar ba'kodesh. No Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? 
Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? And now, for the blessing of our Messiah. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Et HaDerech Yeshua, B'Mashiach Yeshua. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the way of salvation in the Messiah Yeshua. V'Shamru. V'Shamru V'nei Yisrael Et HaShabbat, L'Dorotam B'Rit Olam, B'Ni U'Vein B'Nei Yisrael, O'Thi L'Olam, Ki Sheshet Yamim Asa Adonai, את השמיים ואת הארץ, וביום השביעי שבת ויינפש. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and rested. And now if you can all please face east with me for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem Kevod, Malchuto, Leolam Vayet. Yeshua HaMashiach, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of His glorious kingdom forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. And now for the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai lo'echa b'chol levavcha u'v'chol nafshecha u'v'chol merdecha. Ve'hayu hadvarim ha'ele asher nochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. ושיננתם לבניך, ודיברת בם בשבתך בביתך, ובלכתך בדרך, ובשך בך ובקומך, וקשרתם לאות על ידיך, והיו לטוטפות בין עיניך. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your arm, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. This first song I want to sing. It lifts up the name of our God. Name that was revealed to Moses at the burning bushes. The I am Yahweh, He's the one who was and is and is to come. There's no one like Him. Amen.
to chapter 10, where our portion will begin for this week. As you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch HaTadunai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Barchabanu Mikol HaAmim Venatan Lanu Etorato Baruch HaTadunai Nonten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Bo, which in the Hebrew means go, or actually it's the same Hebrew word that means come as well. It talks about having to get yourself and go someplace and be somewhere uh, at a certain time. Here in our portion, it's the Lord is speaking to Moses and he says, go into Pharaoh and do this. Now, Moses has gone into Pharaoh several times already. Where we are in our story, we've completed seven of the plagues of Egypt. And we have now come to the eighth plague, and right there in the middle of the break in our Torah portion is that we have, that uh, Pharaoh has hardened his heart. The last plague, the plague of hail, Pharaoh said, I have sinned, I have sinned before the Lord, and asking that the Lord is righteous and my people are wicked. And then he says, go and leave this place. As soon as the plague of hail and the thunder and the lightning had stopped, what it is is then Pharaoh hardened his heart and he says, no, I'm not going to let the people go. This is almost like, this is a turning point in the plagues of Egypt here, where Pharaoh had basically lied and said, I will let the people go, but then... He then changed his mind. He hardened his heart. Then God, now at the start of our portion, is talking to Moses. And he now says, I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. This brings up a question because we see in the story of all the plagues of Egypt here as the plagues are coming upon Egypt. It says in certain places that the heart of Pharaoh became hard or Pharaoh hardened his heart or it says the Lord hardened his heart. And some have actually questioned that as the time has gone on, did Pharaoh really want to let the people go but the Lord hardened his heart? Well, if you look at it, did Pharaoh have something to do with his heart being hard? Of course he did. He, he, what it, we, I truly believe is God revealed the character of Pharaoh and revealed, when it says the Lord has hardened his heart, it says that God 
shows the character of Pharaoh and that his heart was hard and it was full of darkness and bitterness and all of those things. And so it says he hardened the hearts of of his servants as well. Because we know God has a plan in all of this. The Lord is doing something here. He's making himself known to all of the Egyptians. Again, it's not just about the releasing of the children of Israel out of Egypt. Let me read on now what the Lord is saying to Moses at this time here. He says, I have hardened the hearts of Pharaoh and his servants that I may show these signs of mine before him. He's making himself known to God. He then says this, verse 2, And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things that I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So again, there's more going on here than just the releasing of the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. We have the Lord wanting to make himself known to the children of Israel as well. And that he's not doing this just for the sons of Israel and that generation. He is doing this so that he might reveal himself, his character, his plan, his purpose, to the sons and the generations to follow after this generation. That this is a theme actually throughout this portion and throughout the whole rest of the book of Exodus and the rest of the Torah cycle is that this is not just all of this instruction and all of this, these stories, if you will, are not about the past. It's about the future. It's about the future generations. It's about all of the sons and the generations to follow that they too, through this process, might learn to know the power of God. To know his character, to know who he is and the great miracles that he's done in Egypt. This story carries on and is a theme throughout the rest of all of scripture. In fact, I want to point out something that is a parallel to this passage and will actually be a parallel for the next couple of weeks. I want to quickly go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is something, this is a passage, many of us have heard this passage before, but it's something that is, this is the theme, this is almost, um, this is almost the theme in which uh, the whole purpose of the Exodus is for. Here we have the book of Corinthians, where we have the letter written to the Corinthians. Now, the Corinthians were not Jews. They weren't Hebrews. These, this is to go out to the Gentiles. This is the message for the whole world, if you will. And this is what it says here in chapter 10, here in 1 Corinthians. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed him, and that rock was Messiah. This is the theme throughout the entire Exodus. Now, what we're going into here is that he's describing other things that are still to to come. The passage of the Red Sea, drinking water from the rock and, and manna from heaven. And so this is a theme throughout the whole rest of the Exodus and the journey of the children of Israel after they leave Egypt. But however, starting back in Egypt, you got to remember, this was all about a lesson. This is all about teaching the Egyptians, the children of Israel, the whole world... Who God is. 
In fact, when, in our passage as well, it will talk about when they do leave Egypt. It's described specifically for the first time here. Uh, it's in chapter 12 at verse 38. It says, a mixed multitude is what left Egypt. That it was not just the children of Israel. It was not just a, the naturally born sons of Israel. Because I think many of us, uh, many people have heard the stories of old, heard the stories of the Exodus and say, oh, that was the Jews, that was the sons of Israel, I'm not of that heritage, so you know that, that story is not really about me. However, the theme as it was taught and as it's instructed here, in our, starting here in our Torah portion and throughout the rest of our Bible, is that this story, these miracles, this revelation of God, His power over all the other gods of the world, His power to save, His power to redeem, His power to bring up out His people, His firstborn, with a mighty hand and bring them up out of slavery and make them a free people so that they may serve Him. That is the theme throughout all of Scripture. And Paul in Corinthians is saying that to even those that are not naturally born. Don't you know that all of your fathers, all of the, our ancestors, they all came up out of Egypt and they all have been delivered by God? Those miracles, those blessings are all a part of you. It's a part of your family, your heritage, your fathers. And in fact, that's how we are to teach our sons. Within Judaism, the, the fathers are instructed to teach their sons as if they themselves were in Egypt. Even though they weren't, even though we're talking about many thousands of years, generations previous, that it's like, I didn't go through, I wasn't in Egypt, I didn't see those plagues with my eyes. However, the tradition within Judaism is to teach your son and say, God delivered me. I was there and these are the miracles in which God performed while we were in Egypt. So this is like, so this is the theme here. So beginning here talking about that, that we're not just releasing the sons of Israel. We're not just revealing ourselves to the Egyptians. No, we're revealing ourselves to the whole world and everything that is going on here is for the instruction and the teaching and it's so that your sons and your sons' sons and all of the future generations might know the power of Almighty God. Amen? So our story continues here. So Moses and Aaron does go to Pharaoh and say to him, because we still got a couple more plagues to get through, a couple more judgments that are coming upon them. Let me read here now chapter 10. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and say, say to them, Thus says the Lord God, God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. And they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. And that they shall eat the residue of what is left, that which remains to you from the hail. Remember, the hail wiped out a bunch of crops. Well, now locusts are going to come and pretty much wipe out anything the hail didn't take care of. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. And they will fill your houses and the houses of your servants and the houses of the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? I mean, the servants of Pharaoh, have, they, they've had enough. 
I mean, Pharaoh has just outright refused to let them go to worship the Lord. They've seen all these judgments. And they, say, and they look to, to Pharaoh and say, do you not realize that Egypt is, well, we're already in ruins. We're already destroyed. We're suffering with all of these things. Why have you just completely out, why haven't you maybe wheeled and dealed with them a little bit? Why haven't you at least entertained this discussion? So what happens is then, so Moses and Aaron are brought into Pharaoh again, and then Pharaoh says this to him, go and serve the Lord. Um, now which of you are wanting to go exactly? Which of you are wanting to go to serve the Lord? He asks this. Now verse 9, Moses says, we will go with our young, with our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Moses is saying here, we will go as one. We are a people, we are a whole people, God has, has consecrated us and we will serve the Lord and we will all serve the Lord. There will not just be part of us that serves the Lord our God. We're not just try, trying to just uh, entreat a couple of people. This is not just about entreating us, this is about letting us all go and serve the Lord. Now Pharaoh, he doesn't, he doesn't agree with this because he says if they all go then, then there's no reason to come back. He's trying to get them to say if you want to go serve the Lord, go serve the Lord but I'm going to keep collateral here so that then you come back. But this is some, one of the first times that Moses is, is acknowledging that the children of Israel though they've been a family that, that bickers at one another at times they kind of rejected Moses. Moses was showing up then he made their bondage harder and so they didn't like Moses. They didn't like Aaron. But now we're starting to see a shift to where the entire children of Israel are acting as one. And this is the pattern in which we, the children of Israel start to now kind of reflect the character of God himself, because God himself is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. And so when the children of Israel then start to act as a unit, as a company, or they're described in that way, and it will also continue on now in our next uh, couple of chapters, that now we're starting to, that the children of Israel are now starting to reflect the character of God. So what happens here is uh, Pharaoh talks to him and, and he, Pharaoh says back to him, The Lord had better be with you when you let you go and your little ones. Beware for evil is ahead of you. He's like, I'm not going to let you go with your little ones. Not so. Go now who are men and serve the Lord that you've desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So he drives them out and says, your men are free to go, but you better not take your little ones. Now obviously this is not what Moses has said. This is not what he requested, and this is not, and, and so the plague that's going to come, see, they were afraid of the locusts. So they were like, maybe we can maybe make a deal so these locusts don't come. Well, we didn't take the deal. So what happens is they go out, the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt, and locusts, they came upon the land of Egypt, eating every herb of the land, all that the hail had left. Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night when it was morning, and the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt, and they were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left, so there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all 
the land of Egypt. See, when hail comes, which was the previous judgment, hail will take out a few things. We'll knock down some crops, knock down some branches of some trees, but everything, things can survive a hailstorm, if you will. But when locusts, when, when a creature like a locust that comes, and locusts will eat everything. And it says this plague was more severe than anything that had come previous or anything that has come after. Well, there's been some stories. You, you can find them. You can search YouTube if you want and see all the results of a swarm of locusts coming in upon a farm, upon a crop, upon anything. They eat everything. There was a, I think there was a story that even uh, there was a, a farmhouse and a, and a piece of land and the kids had a big trampoline, one of the big fibrous big trampolines, and a swarm of locusts came and they ate every bit of the fiber of that trampoline. There was nothing but a frame and some springs hanging on the sides. They eat everything. Not a single green thing was left. It said it ate the fruit of the trees. Any food that was basically left that might still be usable for the Egyptians after the hail... There was nothing left. They ate every herb of the field. Now, there's a lot of theories about, you know, whenever it says in the scripture what the herb of the field was. And some people even think that that was, um, that's like the marijuana, the opium that they may have used at the time. And so all of that was gone now, too. So if you want to, some of the Egyptians and the priests wanting to have, uh, you know, mystical experiences, they now couldn't do that anymore either. And so so this is the judgment that came upon anything of Egypt, anything green, anything that you could eat, consume, or partake of, no longer was there in Pharaoh. They said before that Egypt was destroyed. Well, if it was destroyed then, then what is it now? It's desolate. There's nothing left. It basically turned Egypt into a desert, if you will. It also says the sky was darkened. Now, this isn't the plague of darkness because that's actually coming later. They, they, the locusts came and they probably thought the darkness was of the locusts was something to fear. Well, actually, there's, uh, there's another plague coming to, to deal with that. Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron again in haste when this plague comes. And he says, forgive my sin only this once. Entreat the Lord your God that he may take away me, take away this death. So Pharaoh entreated the Lord. The Lord turned a very strong west wind, blew all the locusts into the Red Sea. And there wasn't a single locust remaining in the rest of the territory of Egypt. However, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart one more time and did not let the children go. Our ninth plague here at the end of chapter 10 starts at verse 21, where the Lord now says to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt. Darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. And there was a thick darkness over the land of Egypt. Three days they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light. In their dwellings. So here's the next plague, the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. Now there's a theme with all of the plagues. I've said before, and you've heard my father say before, that the, the theme of the plagues, there's actually three sets of three plagues and then one final one. And so this is the last of the set of three. With all the plagues, the first plague in the set of three was always announced to Pharaoh at the River Nile. It was announced when in the morning, early in the morning, when Pharaoh would go out to the water, that's when that plague was announced. The plague of blood was the very first one there. The second of the set of three was always done at the palace. And so they would go into Pharaoh, into his throne room, and announce that one. And the third was always unannounced to Pharaoh, but God speaking to Moses and say, perform this thing. And so darkness, this was the one that 
Pharaoh didn't know was coming. This one was not announced to Pharaoh. This one was not announced to the people of Egypt. This one just sort of came and showed up. And this darkness here that it says is that this is the darkness, uh, dark, so dark that it can be felt. Now that is, that's something to fear if you think about that. Now there's experiences that you can have um, where you can go into a series of uh, caves, tourist destinations here um, that you can go, I think, down to Carlsbad, New Mexico, and other cave systems that you can go and tour. And there are certain parts of the cave where they will turn off all the lights and they will show you, and the, and the tour guide will show you, what true darkness is what true darkness feels where there is absolutely no light. There, there's absolutely no light that comes in. You turn off any source of light that there might be, and it goes completely dark. Now, when this happens, when there is absolutely true darkness, pitch black, there is a tangible sense of dread that people feel in that situation. There's, they warn people before they do this on the tour that, you know, if it's like if, if you don't feel like, you know, you can do this, that you should probably, you know, bow out and will not do this part of the tour. Because there's stories and people that when that, when true darkness fills, when there's absolutely no light going into your eyes, that there is almost just like a, a shrinking feeling, a sense of dread that people feel almost claustrophobic. Even if they're in a large room, the darkness almost causes somebody to just close in and it brings a great deal of fear and dread. There's even other stories that go beyond that of, of things that people have heard when they've been in complete darkness as well. When it comes to true darkness, physical true darkness, I'm not talking about the spiritual darkness, but physical true darkness, it's almost like at that point that there is something, I believe the physical and the spiritual are always connected. And so that when there's physical light, it actually reflects what spiritual light is. It feels good. It opens your eyes. The sun, when you see the sun, it, it fills your, your body up full of, of energy. Your body produces vitamin D and you feel better when you see light. The opposite is true when absolute darkness comes. That your body, that I believe in absolute darkness, that somebody's body will wither away, will die more quickly in darkness than it would in light or in any other situation or circumstance. And that's a part almost where there's a parallel between the physical and the spiritual. And so when it comes to this darkness here, it says they didn't see anyone. It says they were there in their homes for three days and couldn't go anywhere. And so this, this plague was truly terrifying, if you will. Terrifying. More so, I would say, than any of the other previous plagues. You could have wild beasts, you can have locusts and, and, and lice, and things can be painful or frustrating, but this is the one that truly spiritually terrifies somebody to their core. A darkness that could be felt, if you will. Pharaoh calls Moses again after the three days. He says, go and serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and herds be kept back. Let your little ones can go with you as well. Again, he's taking the counsel of his servants and he says, you know, entreat these, these sons of Israel. Let them go worship the Lord. We'll just hold on to their herds and their cattle. And so Moses says, no, but you must give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we can sacrifice before the Lord. Our livestock shall go with us. That even, again, like I said, the Lord... The children of Israel are one. They are going to go, and when they leave Egypt, they will leave as one. Pharaoh's heart became hard again, and he would not let them go. 
Alright, so then here we go to chapter 11. And this is where it says that the announcement of the death of the firstborn. And this will now lead into our story of talking about the Passover. Talking about how now the sons of Israel, that this is when they will celebrate the memorial meal. And all of these things that the children of Israel are experienced, experiencing here in Egypt. That there will then be, we're going to remember this. And God is going to give us a feast. And give us things to remember and memorialize memorialize this entire event that when the Egyptians released the children of Israel. The announcement of the the death of the firstborn, this is very interesting as well. Let me go ahead and read here chapter 11 of Exodus. And the Lord spoke to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people. And let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. This is more of a miracle that God is continuing to work in the hearts of every person that experienced this. He's giving instruction to the children of Israel, when, he, when you are driven out, go and ask your neighbor uh, for articles of silver and gold, and this is a kind of leading into how they will plunder Egypt. And he, they... God gives favor in the sight of the, of the Egyptians of the children of Israel. That these people that they have oppressed, that they called their slaves, that God is performing a miracle in their hearts, that they will now look upon them and they will give to them blessings to leave and to go out. And they're shown favor in their sight. Moreover, it says this, Moses was great in the land of Egypt. At this point in time, after all these plagues have come, Moses was now looked in Egypt, and they now looked to him with a great deal of favor. In the same way that their laws would tell them, oh, they can only, they can only worship Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is their king. They now looked at Moses, and it says plainly in our scripture, that he was great in the land of Egypt. Moses was given Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. You would think that Moses, he showed up, he brought all these plagues, that there would be nothing but hate and disdain for this man and the Hebrews, and that the, that the Egyptians would say, you know, it's like with frustration from all the plagues, that they would go, they would hate them. They would go and try to kill them all. No. God showed favor in the sight of the Egyptians, of the children of Israel, and of Moses. When Moses walked out from Pharaoh, from his palace, or wherever he was going, the Egyptians looked and stood in awe of Moses. It's one of the things that I actually believe that, that when the children of Israel leave, and they're a mixed multitude that leave, we believe there was more than just the sons of Israel that left Egypt. There were many Egyptians that left with them. Many other slaves, uh, other uh, whether it's from uh, Ethiopia or any of the other areas that Egypt had conquered or owned land or had, had taken other people as slaves, that it was a mixed multitude that left Egypt and the sons of Israel left. And many Egyptians as well. Because the Egyptians... In their eyes, it was favorable to be with the sons of Israel. They looked with honor upon Moses. And it says this here in our scripture. Verse 4. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals, and there will be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before. Plagues, frogs, darkness, any of those cries, nothing will compare to this. And nor shall it be like it again. 
But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these things, these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of the land. This is not the first time that we've talked about judgment upon the firstborn of Egypt. If we go back to Exodus chapter 4, when God gave the command to Moses to go to the land of Egypt. He said this. Let me go back to Exodus chapter 4, starting at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Back in Exodus chapter 4, God was prophesying to Moses what was going to happen. As much as Moses, throughout the whole process, might question what God is doing, how long is this going to be before the sons of Israel are are set free, God prophesied to Moses back then. He said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. didn't say how many times, but it was going to be a number of times. His heart's going to be hardened. He's not going to let the people go. And if he refuses to let them go, I will kill the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn of Pharaoh. That was prophesied back then. Obviously, this hadn't happened yet, not with the other plagues. But now, the final plague, the final judgment, God is telling Moses, I will give one more plague, he will let them go, and this is what the plague will be. God is fulfilling the prophecy that he prophesied to to Moses sometime previous. This is something that we can be encouraged to see God. God is faithful. God is faithful to his promises. When he says he will do something, that is what he will do. And he already told Moses this is what was going to happen. In chapter 12 of Exodus, our portion continues on. And this is we'll go into the detailing of the Passover. Now, there's a great deal of instruction that has happened on the Passover. Our uh, Brit Hadashah portion for this week is about the Passover and how the Messiah himself kept the Passover. And it's to be a memorial to, uh, to the Lord, to his name, and of all the miracles that God performed in the land of Egypt. A lot of us have received a lot of instruction on that, so there's not a need right now for me to go into some of that detail. There is one thing I do want to point out, another portion from the New Testament that is not part of our Brit Hadashah uh, traditional readings, and that's from 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, here in chapter 12 of Exodus, it talks about you're supposed to bring a lamb without blemish. It's about you're to have a belt on your, on your waist and sandals on your feet and you're to be, get ready to leave. This memorial meal is to be eaten in haste. And I love this passage here in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13, that parallels this whole thing and kind of connects it and it's an encouragement uh, to those of us who celebrate the Passover and also have a testimony of believing in Yeshua the Messiah. Verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your, hope, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts 
as in your ignorance. But as he who called you holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout that time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by the traditions from your, from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Messiah, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Here, the, Peter describes it this way. This is, this is amazing here in this book. That it talks about the lamb without blemish. It talks about the, what the sacrifice, Passover sacrifice should be like. It talks about girding up your loins and being faithful in the same way that the children of Israel, when they sat and celebrated that memorial meal, their loins were girded, their sandals were on, they were ready to leave, they were ready to go. And that we who keep that same Passover, that we can then read some of this instruction here, talking about being faithful that the children of Israel, they were not delivered with corruptible things. It was not gold and silver that, that saved them. In fact, they left with a great deal of gold and silver, but that was not what caused them to leave. In fact, that later became a stumbling block for them when it came time for the creation of the golden calf. But that we who are encouraged, whenever we keep the Passover, we should kind of, we have the instruction of both the new covenant and the old covenant, that then, we can hear this instruction and be encouraged that through faith in Yeshua, that it's not that we were delivered by physical things, that the physical world causes us to live each and every day, but it's no, it's through the blood of Messiah and through His faithfulness, and that our faith and hope are solely in Him and not the corruptible things of the world. God gives us these patterns and these, these instructions, and He gives us signs for us to follow after. He gives us the Passover as a memorial to remember Him and all the miracles that He's done. And so it's amazing that God continues to be faithful to us. And again, this is the pattern and the theme throughout all of Scripture. To make Himself known to us. It's reiterated again here at the end of, uh, or in the middle here of chapter 12, where it says that when you celebrate the Passover here in the future, when you celebrate this Passover, you and your children will ask, your children will ask you, what is this service that you do? And it says, you shall say this, uh, verse 27 of chapter 12. You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. This again, your children will ask. What is this? What is the meaning of all of these things? And we're to use these stories of old as an instruction to our children to follow after the Lord, to hear what He has commanded, to do what He has said. Our passage uh, continues, and our portion will continue all the way through chapter 13. Um, the Pharaoh drives the children of Israel out after the death of the firstborn. There was not a single one... There was not a single household in Egypt where there was not a death of the one of the firstborn. And it says that here in our passage in chapter 12, uh, here at verse 30. 
And he sends them out, and he again, favor was given in the sight of the Egyptians, and they're driven out of the land. And then what continues on is it, it continues to finalize what this Passover should mean. The end of chapter 12 talks about regulations for who should follow the Passover. And one of the, I want to conclude with this, I want to say this, is that it talks about how you, that no for, foreigner is to eat the Passover. That one should be circumcised if they were to come and celebrate the Passover and must keep this memorial meal. That even a sojourner or a hired servant, they shall not eat it. He then stipulates, though, that if someone is a part of your congregation, if a stranger dwells with you, let him be circumcised, let him come near, and then he can keep the Passover. Now, in all the years that I've celebrated Passover with me and my family or have known... um, within Judaism that they celebrate the Passover they aren't, there aren't circumcision checks at the door when somebody's coming and attending a Passover Seder they don't go and they, they don't follow this in the, in the idea of that everybody must be circumcised of the flesh before you're coming into the door and sitting down here at this Passover Seder the whole discussion topic here the point of this instruction is this is that to celebrate the Passover, the memorial meal, that God has come, He has passed over the threshold and made covenant with us. You have to be a part of the covenant. That's what the circumcision represents. That's what the circumcision that was given to Abraham represents, is that you are in covenant with God, you have made covenant with Him. Now as scripture goes on, Moses will teach us in Deuteronomy, Yeshua will speak of it in his message, that it is not about the circumcision of the flesh or the outward things, but it's about a circumcision of the heart and who you are inwardly. Are you someone who believes in God? Are you in covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in your heart? And I think many people realize this. Whenever we've gone to celebrate the Passover, the focus of that is this. It's about the covenant that we make with God, and it's not about being physically of the covenant, but spiritually. Are you of the family of God? Are you spiritually of the family of Israel? You might be of the more described of the mixed multitude. Your heritage might not be within a Jewish heritage or of Israel, but that doesn't matter. What matters is you being in covenant and getting to know the God of Israel that revealed himself through these things. Just like the letter to the Corinthians, not talking to a bunch of Jews, talking to a bunch of Gentiles. This message has said that you are to know, do not be unaware of the fact that that the blessing of the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt belongs to you and to your fathers as well, regardless of your physical descendancy. But we should, when we read this, and it talks about that you are to be in covenant with God if you are to eat this meal. You're not to eat this if you have any malice toward your brother. If you have any hatred toward anyone. That this is a special meal for those that truly love the Lord and follow His commandments, His instruction. Which include loving your neighbor as yourself. So let us, as we uh, have our instruction here in January for the store portion, as we start to, the now in the secular world, we have, we've just started a new year, if you will. But it's kind of interesting the way that this portion, where it falls, is that now as we look to 
the biblical feasts that are coming for this next year. As we look to when Passover comes and all of these feasts, let us have a renewed sense of our reverence toward keeping those feasts. The first one is Passover. The first commanded appointed time is Passover coming up in several months. And that we should look to that Passover and we should continue our reverence and our awe of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His power, his redemption that he gives to us. And that that is what this Passover is to represent. That's what it means. And that is what is special about God. And how he chose us from among all peoples. And given us his name. Given us a memorial to remember him by. And has delivered us and redeemed us with great miracles. And signs and wonders. Making himself known to the world. That is the God that we serve. And that is the one that we should always remember. And let these stories continue to remind us. Of the power of the almighty God. The God of Israel. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, once again for your teaching and your instruction here in the Torah. Father, I pray that we be encouraged and we be uplifted, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for the blessings and the strong and mighty hand that you delivered the sons of Israel out of Egypt. We thank you, Lord, for giving us signs to remember All of these things by, Lord, we thank you for Passover. We thank you for the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we might remember and that we might learn what our fathers experienced and that we might teach our sons, Lord, of your power and your might and your strength. So, Father, we love you and we bless you. And as we go throughout this year, Father, I pray that we have a special reverence and a renewed sense of your power, Lord, as we celebrate the feasts in the coming year. So we love you, we bless you, we thank you on this day. And it's in your son Yeshua that we pray all of these things. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chai alam natabetocheinu Baruch atadunai nonten ha-Torah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Um, This evening's teaching that we're uh, bringing to you, uh, we have two passages in the New Testament that I want to share with you very briefly. Uh, And it ties back into our Torah portion, Bo. And in Bo, we cover, of course, the final judgments that fell upon Egypt, the Passover uh, that took place there, the actual historical Passover. So Passover is a is the, really the subject, and so we have a couple of pat. There's several we could have selected from, but I want to take you to some particular ones. Passages that we've all heard in uh, the New Testament, but I think that we need to take it back to the original instruction and, and kind of get a better understanding of what uh, Paul and um, the Gospel writers, Luke, was saying about it. So the first passage I'd like to take you to is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul is offering some instruction, and he's going to refer to when the Messiah kept the Passover with the Apostles. And uh, so in first chapter, um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, let us begin at verse 20. Therefore, when you meet, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. 
For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those that have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Yeshua in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, and do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. The, um, this passage is probably, I would say, is probably the dominant passage um, that, that Christians use as the base instruction for keeping what is called commonly communion. Now, they use the term Lord's Supper and they use the term uh, communion instead of referring to the Passover. And this is part of the church tradition. Now, if you're a good Catholic and you go to Mass, one of the things that they're going to have as a part of their liturgy and as a part of the Mass is they'll have the sacrament, they call it a sacrament, they have a sacrament here of communion, and uh, typically, um, uh, for what I observed, while you go forward, the priest has got the little cup, and he's got these little wafers, and he dips it into the little cup, and so when he puts it on your tongue and into your mouth, so you get some juice and this little wafer all at the same time. They don't necessarily separate them out, but, but that's when you get it. Although they'll say blessings over the two different things, that's how they serve it. Now, if you're a good uh, Baptist or possibly a Methodist or one of the Presbyterian, one of the other major Protestant denominations, they will usually have something like this. They'll have up at the front of the church, they've got these trays with these little tiny uh, things to, to put the juice in. And it's not wine, it's Welch's grape juice. And uh, they'll have some cracker stuff that looks like a bunch of matzah that's been broken up in, in another plate. And then they, the ushers or the elders of the church, whoever's serving, quote, the table of the Lord, will go through the aisles and the pews and they'll pass those things down. And you, you collect a, a piece of bread and you collect a, a cup. And, um, and after everybody's gotten some, well, they go back and then they say a blessing um, over, you know, the bread, they say a blessing over the cup, and then you consume of them um, there at that point, and they call it communion. And uh, the instruction is you're supposed to be thinking about the Lord, you know, when you do this, and uh, thinking about the, what the Lord did for you and, and things like that. There is absolutely no instruction 
And in fact, most Christians are shocked to find out that that communion thing is one tiny little segment that comes out of a Passover Seder. Now, a Passover Seder is the order. It's called the order. And it is, Passover has, has become this very specific thing. There's an order to how it's done. In fact, there's four cups. They're actually drank. Um, the first cup that you drink is a cup of sanctification where you separate this meal different from all other meals. The cup of instruction, you tell the story, the ancient story of the Exodus about the children of Israel and the judgments God put upon Egypt and especially about the death of the firstborn. You have your, your supper, you have your actual meal and then the cup after the meal and the bread after the meal is the special bread that had been broken, uh, in, um, covered in a linen cloth, had been buried behind the stone, which is a pillow. And it comes forth. There's a resurrection of that bread that comes forth. And then you drink this cup, and it, the cup is called the cup of redemption. And then the last cup, they call the cup of praise, is associated with certain psalms uh, that you sing or are part of, and that's the Passover. That, that, that by the keeping of the four cups, you go through all the elements and the different blessings uh, associated with it. Now, you don't hear Paul giving any of that. I mean, Paul's talking about the Passover that Yeshua kept, but he doesn't use any of the language of explaining the Passover like I just did. If you go to the Gospels, in fact, let me take you to Luke and chapter, um, I think it's 22, I'm going to go to. I've got to get to Luke. For some reason, I didn't put one of my ribbons in that place, which I normally do. So you have to let me clamber around here finding it. Oh, here's the ribbon. I just grabbed the wrong one. Okay. See, I got these colored ribbons that sets up my section of the bud. I, I didn't see it. So, All right. So here in Luke 22... Beginning at verse 7, this is Luke's version of the gospel explaining. He said, Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will be carrying a pitcher of water, Follow him into the house that he enters, and you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large, furnished, upper room. Prepare it there. And they departed, and they found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So, what is bound up in preparing for the Passover, and why is it that Paul doesn't explain the stuff about the Passover when he's trying to give the teaching about what what Yeshua did there? There is a lot of background here. Um, on this particular passage, I'm going to give you a little bit more background. 
So Peter and John, they go into the city, and they're going to look for a man carrying water. What's the big deal about that? Well, if you understood the culture, men don't carry water. That's a task that was only done by ladies. So if there's a man carrying a pitcher of water, then, and he probably is up on his shoulder or whatever, that would be very noticeable in the days of, of Yeshua and the, and the apostles. So they see this man, he's very noticeable, there's something very distinct about him. They follow him, and he turns out he's the owner of a particular structure, a house, there in Jerusalem, and it is announced to him, the teacher has need of it, and he will then furnish, he'll give you this large open room called the upper room that's furnished and it's ready to go for a large number of people to eat the Passover, and that they were then instructed to prepare the Passover, which meant they were the guys that had to go down to the temple that afternoon with a lamb for it to be slain, and they would carry the lamb back so that it could be roasted there for that night and all of the other food elements that would be associated with it. The, uh, a lot of people just don't know this, but uh, this upper room thing is very, very well known in Israel. In fact, if you go on a tour to Israel, one of the things they probably might do is they'll take you to, quote, the upper room. And it's not just some room that... Um, that they they decided to call it the upper room because they found something that was upper. Um, no, it's a very well-known historical landmark that existed in the first temple period. It is the room that is built above the tomb of David. If you down below of that room is David's tomb. And David, of course, he was reburied um, in the days of when, just before Yeshua came. And the reason why he was is because King Herod, who was the king of the Jews at the time, was asserting himself that he was the, he was the king of the Jews, but there was a lot of people who were resisted because he was appointed by the Romans. And they wanted to make a statement, Herod, you're not really the king of the Jews. Let me tell you who's really the king of the Jews. That would be King David. And so they took King David's, um, his burial point, and they relocated it up to this area, which is uh, we call the Zion Gate uh, in the old city. And they built a structure there for him to be buried in, and the structure included this second floor, this upper room and so when people would come to uh, thank God for King David or to recognize King David um, they would go to that room and this is the room that Yeshua decided to um, hold the Passover in he's the son of David and he's eating the Passover <laughs> and and the, the, the apostles are getting it. Not only is Yeshua the Lamb of God that was promised by Abraham and is part of what the Passover is all about from the exodus out of Egypt, but he's also the son of David. And there's just tremendous meaning in this, tremendous substance in terms of your faith. Um, and the gospel writer Luke wants to make sure that you know 
that when Yeshua came with his disciples to do this, they were eating the Passover. And in fact, he emphatically records Yeshua saying, prepare for the Passover. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And he will go a little bit further in this passage where they will complete the Passover. And when it comes to the part about the cup and the bread, Yeshua is going to make this incredible statement. He said, I'm not going to eat of that bread or drink of that cup again until we are in the kingdom. And that was the final meal, quote, the last supper of Yeshua, because that night he's arrested. And that morning, they take him to be crucified, and he dies the next day on the Passover day. And the the last meal he had was the Passover meal. And so that is filled with great meaning and great substance uh, to what it means in our faith. But all of that, all of that Passover stuff, uh, the upper room being the... the, um, above the tomb of King David, uh, the emphatic statements that Yeshua made about, uh, you know, you're showing the kingdom is going to be coming and I'm going to be coming back to be in the kingdom with you and I'll eat the Passover with you again, you know, at that time. None of that makes it, and this is for me, I've never run into any Christians, and I certainly didn't get the instruction when I was a part of the church and Christianity, never heard any of that. I heard about communion. And in fact, the... The only thing I ever heard about any dispute or any substance about communion was, do you do it every week or do you do it once a month or how often do you do communion? Some churches do it once a month. They'll have a Sunday night service and they'll do it once a month. Some churches do it every week. In the case of the Catholics, you go to Mass, you you have it. It's part of the Mass. And... um, and they base that on, you know, that every time you do eat of it, you show forth the Lord's uh, death and his resurrection. You, you show forth the sacrifice and, and what were the purposes of Maya as often as you eat it. So they say, well, we're going to eat it real often so that we really remember that. And they divorce themselves from the fact this is the Passover The average Christian is perplexed when you walk up to him and you say, you do understand that this communion thing you're doing, it's part of Passover, and there's a specific date every year you're to eat the Passover. You're actually commanded to eat the Passover, and you're supposed to understand the Passover to be these things. But the whole Passover instruction goes away. Um As I mentioned to you before, in a Passover Seder, you know, there's, in fact, if you read from Jewish literature and if you get a Passover Seder, you're going to find there are 15 distinct elements. Four cups, 15 distinct elements that you complete. And to complete the Seder, typically if you're following those basic 15, you're talking about a minimum of a three-hour meal that you're going to be having with your brethren. Uh, there's probably an hour's worth of liturgy that's in the front of it. You're going to have your dinner, and then you'll have your final elements. And it's about three hours, you know, to typically do this. Communion that's done by the church is about five minutes. In Passover, you eat a whole feast. In communion, you get a crumb and a little amount that's about the same amount if you were to spill it. 
fact, if you knock a communion cup over uh, that you have personal communion cup, it's not much of a mess. Just dab it up with a little Kleenex or whatever, and you're fine. Uh, it's about the same amount juice and the same amount of crumbs that would fall off of a Passover table in the course of keeping the Passover. Um, and there's such a disparaging difference between what Yeshua did with his disciples, which was based on the instruction of Moses in a huge historical event, the beginning of the Exodus, the promise of Abraham for the Lamb of God, King David, and where they ate it with King David, and Christian communion, it's like everything that I've told you before, it's like it's not part of communion. Now, mind you, I also want to remind you that we are told not only in the law, but it's repeated by Paul in the instruction, you better not eat this thing in an unworthy manner. You better do this correctly, is what he's saying. If you do this incorrectly, you do this intentionally incorrectly, this, look around, this is the reason why you have some people who are weak in your assembly and some have already died. That God pours out a judgment and he wants you to come and judge yourself before God. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? This is the core thing that brought about your salvation. This is the work of the Messiah to give you redemption. You're, you're taking the cup of redemption. And are you thanking God for his willingness to give up his life for your life? And are you recognizing that? And by the way, this is not a cavalier thing we do. This is serious. And if there's any liturgical event that you should be a part of, it's this. Now, I don't know what you're going to do on Sabbath Sunday. I don't know what you're going to do with the rest of the stuff. But this one... It specifically says, you better do this right, or you are going to be judged by God. Because what you're doing, if you don't do it correctly, is completely contrary to your whole testimony and your whole faith. It's negating of your whole faith in God. Wow. You know what really bothers me about my Christian brethren, whom I used to be a part of? How can you, how can you, after you find out this is the commandment of the Lord, and that there's these requirements for doing it properly, and the Messiah himself did these things with his apostle, you decide, because you're a churchman now, you get to do it completely different. And I don't want to do a three-hour thing. I don't want to have to prepare the table for three hours. And eat it with multiple people. Let me just go to the assembly and give me this wafer thing and let me do some, let, let me drink a little juice and we'll just say that's it. And let's skip everything that Yeshua did with his apostles. As I said to you before, in Jewish tradition and custom, there are 15 elements that form up the Passover. Do you know where the most authoritative, earliest Jewish literature 
Jewish literature that will explain how a Passover is actually to be conducted, the way and manner it is to be conducted. Do you know what the oldest literature is about that subject For the, from a Jewish source? What I just read to you from the New Testament. My Jewish brethren, if they were to be honest and say, where's the oldest literature where somebody is explaining how we keep the Passover Seder, they would have to be honest and say, well, the oldest Jewish literature would be the evidence of when Yeshua of Nazareth kept the Passover. Because in the Gospels, and in and what we're recording here in the New Testament, this is when we see that Yeshua comes in and he says, this is the Passover. And one of the first things he does is he takes off his uh, outer garments and he washes the feet of the disciples. Did you know that one of the first things we do in the Passover is we have a ceremonial washing? Just like what Yeshua did. And then they have some teaching. And in the case of the book of John, uh, you should give some very profound, specific teachings about God and our relationship with God. And that's when we talk about God's relationship with us and the wonderful thing he did in bringing us out of Egypt. So that we wouldn't be enslaved anymore. And Yeshua is talking about how not only will you, he said, I call you like friends, not just servants. You're not just a servant to me because you're going to be enslaved. He said, I call you friends. That that's the relationship he wants with us. And then it says they had the meal. And then it says he takes bread after the meal. Think about that for a moment. Bread after the meal? When you eat bread during the meal? What bread could this possibly be after the meal? Well, in the Hebrews, in a Jewish Seder, what do we call that bread? That's called the afikoman. That's a very special piece of bread. We start out with three pieces of matzah. We We say this is the unity. And it's a, it actually symbolizes the unity of God. Because the upper piece is eaten by the Father. The second piece is the piece that's broken that everybody gets to eat from. The third piece, are you ready for this? Is called the comforter. That we eat with the bitter herbs. To comfort us. With so here's these three pieces of bread that represents God. And you go through the Passover Seder seeing how each piece of bread is a part of the Seder. Well, that second piece of bread, one of the first things you do is you break that bread. You pick the best part. It's called the afikoman. You wrap it in a linen. You then hide it in the house. You take it to another place away from the table. You put a pillow over the front of it, which is called the stone. You put a stone over it, and after the meal, you're going to be calling for that piece of bread to come back. Not bread you ate during the meal, that particular piece of bread that was broken, and it's going to be brought back to the table, and it's referred to as a resurrection, that the bread is resurrected from the grave. And, of course, every year the Jews, we go through this little fun thing in the Seder where we dispatch the children to go get the bread. 
But there's a game that's played every year. And earlier, the children stole the piece of bread. They went to where it was. They took it out of its linen cloth and they hid the bread. So when the leader of the Passover says, Afikoman, come forth, and they dispatch the children to go get the bread, the children come back reporting, the stone has been moved and all we found was this linen cloth. Now that's the picture of the resurrection that came three days and three nights after Yeshua kept the Passover. That is stunning to me. My Jewish brethren do this every year. In my own personal testimony, keeping the Passover is the most Christian thing I've ever done in my life. I defy you to find something that's more Christian than that. That illustrates to the whole family and to your children what the disciples, the apostles saw at the resurrection. Right after the Passover. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then they eat of this special bread. They each get a nibble of it. They drink of the cup. They are to consume the whole cup. And whatever bread is still remaining of the Afikoman, because everybody just took a nibble, which is, by the way, called the dessert of the meal, the very best part of the meal. They take the remaining piece of bread that wasn't consumed there. That is now wrapped in a cloth. It is stored now in the highest place of the house. And they say that the bread has ascended to heaven. And it does not come down until the next Passover. So Yeshua, after he ate the Passover, after he was tried, convicted, executed, went in the grave, after he's resurrected, it was a short time later he ascended to the Father. And he's waiting up there for the next Passover that he will have with us again. And we illustrate it in our homes. The bitter herbs is just before we eat the meal. And in fact, it's the, at the moment in the Passover, it's one of the first times you eat matzah. And you have to eat it with bitter herbs. That is the very moment in the Seder that Yeshua was having with his apostles that Judas got up to go betray him. And the Lord then told the disciples, there's one amongst us who's going to betray me. And he gave the answer. He said, it's the one who sops with me. And the sopping thing was where you take the matzah and you put it into the bitter herbs and you scoop some bitter herb out and you eat matzah with bitter herbs. And that's how he designated who Judas was and that he was the betrayer. The Passover Seder revealed it. Now, he then, after the Seder was over, he went out to, to uh, they sang a hymn, it says, and then they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. What hymn did they sing? It's going to shock you. It's this beautiful hymn that says, this is the day 
that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That's the hymn he sang with the disciples. The day he knew he was going to die. But this was the day that he provided redemption for us. Therefore, we have joy and we have a reason to sing. Like I said, the most Christian thing I've ever done in my life is keep the Passover. And it's utterly fascinating to me that Jews keep the Passover and don't believe he's the Messiah. And my Christian brethren who believe he's the Messiah don't do the Passover. Go figure. What is wrong with this picture? What is, how did we get so fouled up? Because we decided we didn't want to follow the commandments of the Lord. We wanted to make up our own rules. We wanted to do what we wanted to do instead of what the Lord said to do. Well, that was ancient Israel. That was the Israel that would disobey the Lord. And today, Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, those who belong to the God of Israel, are still doing the exact same thing. We're going to be coming up on the Passover season. You know, and in the first part of April, we'll have Passover this year. I would pray, if you're listening to this teaching, that you would commit yourself to keep the Passover. Keep it this year. And if you've never done it before, learn about it. And find somebody who knows about it, who can invite you to the table and teach you and show you so that you can be a part of this. But let me give you a warning. If you hear this instruction and you now have the knowledge of these things from the Lord, and you decide, well, <laughs> not that important to me, I, uh, I'm, uh, I think I'll pass on that. I'll just do what else I normally do. Let me give you a fair warning that with the full knowledge of this, God says he will render judgment on those that are unworthy. Now, God's justice is if you're ignorant of something, he's merciful to you. He's not going to expect you to know about something you haven't been taught about. Because it's just like with your children. You, you give them mercy. If they don't understand something, you don't discipline them for things they haven't been taught and they don't know about. But if you've given them specific instruction on certain things they're doing, and then they disobey that, that's when they get disciplined, right? You do that to your children, God does the same thing with us. You now have too much information. You've now been taught that Yeshua kept the Passover, and you're supposed to keep the Passover if you're a believer in Yeshua. And if you decide, I'm not going to keep the Passover, even though I claim I'm a believer in Yeshua, I have, good, I have bad news for you. You're going to treat this in an unworthy manner, and God's judgment will fall upon you and your house and your brethren. 
for this reason some of you are weak and some of you have already gone to sleep and died uh, that's pretty serious stuff from the Lord wouldn't you say and the reason is because the Passover is in truth of fact a very glorious and incredible thing that you can do in your faith with the Lord you are sitting at the same table with the Lord and he is looking forward to establishing his kingdom and sitting down again with us at that table and eating the Passover again with us let us not ignore this or ignore his invitation to come to the Passover table all right I guess that thing back in Egypt was pretty important and it's still pretty important to us today amen all right let's pray father thank you for the instruction for this week about how you brought Israel out of Egypt and that through the death of the firstborn of Egypt and the Passover that you covered us with the blood of the lamb and that we were able to go forward we thank you Lord for the blood of the Lamb of God we thank you Lord for the unleavened bread the bread of haste that we get to eat with you we thank you for the Seder that teaches us and teaches our children what you have done for us and is the basis of our testimony in faith we thank you for all those things and I ask Lord that you'd encourage us strengthen us and our most holy faith to keep these things according to your commandment. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. Shalom.
is a gift from God to put a smile upon your face. He's got the 